Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Faith That Works, with a message entitled, Faithful Until the End. So let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading today's text. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. When we began our study of James, we noticed that James begins with an invitation. Count it all joy, he says, when you meet various trials. So why joy? Well, he says, through these trials, God is producing steadfastness in you. In other words, he's producing a kind of faith that is determined, resolute, firm, and full of resolve through until the end. That's really important because James knew that unless you stand firm unto the end, you won't receive the crown of life. But because God is on your side, because God is for you, he's allowing you to pass through these present sorrows to give you the kind of faith that never fails. You know, one thing becomes apparent. God has never promised us that we would not go through hardship. Never believe that because you're a child of the king, you won't suffer. Remember, we worship a savior who is nailed to a cross, and we are called to know him in his sufferings. But please also notice that life itself, whether you're a Christian or not, is filled with hardship. That's what it means to live in a fallen and cursed creation. In this world, everything is broken. Earthquakes, disease, and injustice are the way of the earth. As we started James 5, James warns the unrighteous rich, those rich who have been oppressing the population, that God awaits them in the day of judgment. Yet before that final day, the unrighteous rich seem to have their own way. James 5 verse 6 says that they have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That's what happens on this side of eternity. Sometimes injustice seems to prevail. Now from that, we come to a very simple conclusion. Both believers and unbelievers suffer. Disease attacks all, regardless of your faith. So does poverty. So does injustice, and persecution. So does the cruelty of others. We live in a fallen world, but added to that, Christians sometimes suffer more because superimposed on all these other sufferings are the sufferings that we must bear in order to identify with Christ. But here's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. For the Christian, our suffering is seen as a gift sent by a loving and kind God to produce steadfastness in us. In other words, we know that God allows this into our lives so that there might be an eternal, long-term benefit to us. 
a loving heavenly father would only ordain this for you because he is preparing for you the best possible eternity. It's his loving hand you're encountering in the midst of these trials. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So today's sermon is for all who are suffering. You'll receive the necessary tools in the midst of it to be faithful to the end and so be prepared for an eternal weight of glory. James 5, 7 to 12 teaches us four attitudes that are necessary to be faithful to the end, to to keep perspective, to win the race that's set before us. Here's the first. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. You can be patient because you expect the Lord to be faithful. That's what we read in verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. See, did you notice that James says be patient three times? He starts by commanding us to be patient. Then he says, watch the patience of the farmer. And then ends by repeating his first command, be patient. You know, the Greek word means to remain tranquil. Don't become upset. Be calm and hard and in attitude and in faith. It's a passive virtue. You know, sometimes there's nothing to do but simply to wait. Imagine, for example, you've broken a leg and you're, you're due to compete in some athletic event. So what should you do? And the answer, you should learn to wait. Be patient. You've got to cultivate an inner attitude of calm hope for the future. That's why James uses the example of the farmer. You know, one of the things the farmer has no control over are the rains that come. Those rains will control his crops and his income and his harvest and his future. Now, in Palestine, the early rains came in late autumn, and the late rains came in the early spring. You'd plant your crops before the winter season, and then, if the rains came, they would germinate well. Then, if the late rains came just on time, that would mean that the crops would receive moisture at just the right moment that they would start their growth spurt. So if the rains came just right, well, you'd get a bumper crop. So what should the farmer do about that? Well, he should learn to have an inner attitude of of hopefulness, a calm spirit that receives from God what he can't control. And James says that's the same attitude you should develop about the coming of the Lord. You know, when that day comes, the day of suffering and unrighteousness will end. No, it won't end today, but it will end one day. Here's what a believer must do live expectantly in the light of the Lord's coming. There's some things in life you can't change, but but Christ will change them all in due time. Be patient. You know, one of the tragedies among Christians is that, you know, many believers don't actively study the great doctrines around the second coming of Christ. To the most part, they remain ignorant. They haven't been taught very much outside of the fact that Christ will return and beyond that, many simply don't have a clue. I suppose one of the reasons for that is is the disagreements among believers on this issue in the past. You know, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Are you pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill? And even if you're pre-mill, are you a dispensational premillennial or historic premillennial? See, others will say, I've got no idea about stuff like that. And on top of that, 
We've heard of believers making wild predictions about the end times. You know, I'm old enough to remember some saying that when the European Union reaches 10 nations, that's when Christ is going to come back. Well, now there are around 27 nations, so there goes that theory. And then some said that when Israel becomes a nation in 1948, that that generation who saw that would not pass away before Christ returned. Well, you know, the net effect of bad Bible study has been that a, a whole generation has tuned out to the study of end times. They think the study of end times is a study of, of speculation. See, they don't know that it's really a study of remaining steadfast in trial while we await the coming of the Lord. The study of end times is to assure us that God is on the throne and that he is orchestrating all events, leading history to a climax. Therefore, don't fear and don't give up hope and, and have courage. Unlike the rains for the farmer, this event, the second coming, it's certain. And it certainly allows us to be patient while undergoing trials. It allows us to remain faithful until the end. So the first thing you do when you suffer is to wait patiently for the day when Christ brings all suffering to an end. Now, remember, I said James is giving us four attitudes that we must cultivate in order to be faithful until the end. The first was that we were to be patient as we await the second coming of the Lord. Now, second, we need to establish our hearts so that we resolve to please Christ alone. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, my Bible says, establish your heart, and other translations say, strengthen your heart. Make the center of your will and your intellect and your emotions strong. See, this is more than passive waiting. This is an active strengthening of resolve. The same word is used of Jesus in Luke 9:51. There it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When he sets his face to Jerusalem, it simply means he's rigidly determined or resolved to press forward and nothing would stop him. He had come to the place of inner conviction, and that, says James, is what we must have as we patiently await the coming of the Lord. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, we're committed to the mission of providing excellence in Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible. Both Bible teaching and engagement programs are available online through video, print, radio, podcast, mobile app, and CD. It's our prayer that anyone who tunes in will discover encouragement for their spiritual journey and insight for living through the study of the Bible. All of these resources are made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. It's your generous donations that allow the mission to be accomplished. So thank you for all you do. And remember, that if you want to receive our monthly gift this month, Dr. John's new booklet, 10 Questions About Money Matters, all you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And thanks again for your generous support. James says we have to establish our hearts the same way that a soldier will stand firm when they're preparing for battle. 
They form battle formations, and then they look ahead as the enemy advances to kill them with weapons of war. Every impulse is to run away, to hide, to seek a place of safety. But their resolve is such that they will not run away. They have an iron will. They will go through a horrible scenario, refusing to flee. Go back to James 1 verse 6. There James said that the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea. And and so notice the contrast between the attitude of the doubter and the confidence of the man or woman who has established his or her heart, has taken his or her stand in full resolve. You have to imagine the scene in James. The believers there are suffering. Some have been mistreated by the unrighteous rich. Some are being persecuted for their faith, but they're not running away. They're, They're going forward. They are resolved like a soldier in battle. But should they have the attitude of James 1.6, vacillating and going back and forth, well, then they won't stand. So imagine the person who's suffering. Is God really using this for some noble purpose? What if the world is just random, bad stuff just happens? Or what if God has rejected me? Or what if he doesn't care about what I'm going through? What if there is no God? See, I notice in this passage that James warns about grumbling against each other. Of course, that's natural. When people go through suffering, it's only natural for them to blame someone. Or maybe someone let them down in their hardship. They they didn't stand with them. Soon we find out everything that's wrong. But that attitude is exactly the opposite of the one who has their heart established, who has a steel resolution in their soul. They don't go back and forth on issues. They're certain. It's all part of God's plan, and more so. This suffering is temporary. It's going to end. Christ is coming back. Notice that James here twice refers to the coming of Jesus. First, he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then secondly, he says, the judge is standing at the door. The image is of a doorway leading from heaven to earth. And now the shadow of the one waiting to cross the threshold appears. In just a moment, his his foot will step over and he'll place his foot from heaven down to the Mount of Olives and the mountain will split apart and the nations will mourn and the great king will be among us. Right now, he's moved toward the doorway, says James. Of course, it's not just James who speaks that way. Paul also does. Romans 13, verse 12, he writes, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And Peter speaks that way as well. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So that's the image. The night's almost over. The great king is now at the doorway, ready to step through. This is the last hour of human history. Get ready. Here he comes. Be resolved in the present hour. Now of all times, be strong. Establish your hearts. But it's right here where the unstable begin to falter. If Christ is standing at the door, well, you know, he's been standing there for the last 2,000 years and he hasn't moved. And even if he returns today, how can someone living 2,000 years ago write that he's coming now standing at the door? You know, I remember listening to an interview with a, with a union leader some time ago. It was on television. He was the son of a pastor, and he had abandoned his own faith. He said, my dad constantly spoke of the second coming of Jesus. And then he paused and he said, you know, all that stuff just never happened. Isn't it interesting that our New Testament anticipates that question? 2 Peter 3 verse 4 says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. 
Then Peter seeks to answer the question. Most people in the ancient world took Noah's warning about a universal flood as as an empty threat. Yet the event happened. I might add to Peter's argument. You know, most people took the prophet's warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. Over a number of generations, they took it as an empty threat. They died in the suffering that followed because they paid no attention. In the same way, many take this threat of the judge standing at the door as an empty threat as well. But why this long delay? Well, Peter answers with two important insights. First, one day to the Lord is as a thousand years. Well, that's simple. Don't assume that God, the eternal one, thinks of the length of time as we do. It's kind of like a child that's saying, are we there yet? Yeah, soon, says dad. 30 seconds later, I thought we were almost there. You see, in the same way, don't assume God reckons this event as we do. And then second, God is patient. And it's his kindness that has prevented the great judgment to come up to this point. He's giving room for human beings to repent. So says James, the judge is standing at the door. And with that is warning, not just to unbelievers, but to believers, to us. Don't judge lest you be judged. Don't you start grumbling, for you too will stand before him. James has been fostering attitudes in us. You notice that? First, be patient. Second, establish your hearts. Third, remain steadfast. Persevere by following the examples of the heroes of the past. Look again at verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We've been noticing a series of words James has used. He starts by commending us to be patient. Then he moves to urging us to establish our hearts, be resolved, don't vacillate. Now he urges us to be steadfast, and, and the idea is persevering. If being patient demands a certain passive waiting and standing firm is a bit more active, now James moves to a very active virtue. Perseverance is entirely active. You know, sometimes in the Bible, we're given the image of a runner running hard to the finish line. They've got to summon up all their energy not to give up. And James summons two examples. You know, first he says, think of the prophets. He might have in mind men like Jeremiah, who who was thrown into prison and told to remain silent. The prophet Amos was told to go back to Judah and prophesy there, but get out of Israel. Elijah ended up hiding in a cave under the threat of death, and, and Hosea endured a heartbreaking marriage in order to show God's marriage to Israel. All of them had it tough. But all these men endured and never stopped their ministry. They pushed on believing God's reward lay before them. And then, curiously, James gives us the example of Job. And we might wonder about that. You know, those of us who have read the book hear a lot of impatient complaining going on in Job. But three things become apparent in reading that book. First, Job refused to curse God. Second, Job refused the bad theology of his friends. And third, Job stated, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In other words, these men, the prophets and Job, were men who never stopped running in their faith, no matter what they faced. They didn't quit. They didn't turn from their faith. They they kept doing the ministry for which God had called them. You do the same. Get tough by fixing your eyes on the truth before us. James then ends his argument in a really strange way. 
Verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So why does James include this verse, which really it's, it's taken from the mouth of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? See, I think the answer is simple. Do you remember James 3 and the power of the tongue? I think that's what James is getting at here. When people suffer, when they're mistreated, when, when things go badly for them, when, when they get sick or when they lose everything they have in a business deal, they'll begin to say all manner of things to get themselves out of it. Truth will go and survival will take over. People will begin to lie in order to get out from under their sufferings. I don't know what this meant for the people James was teaching, but I can only assume this had to become a problem. When the pressure is turned up, the ethics of a person is sometimes turned down. But it will never be that way for someone whose hope is in God. You know, as I thought about this final point, I, I thought about how nicely this summed up what James was trying to say. Be patient. Establish your heart. Remain steadfast. And don't become rash. Be measured in all you say. Be calm in spirit and continue to act out of perfect trust in God. No matter what it is that you and I are going through today, we can still confidently go through that without having to allow our faith to become upset. God has provided for us all the tools to remain steadfast. John, this is a great teaching today. Thank you so much. It came to mind, though, when you were talking about this family I know who seems to have suffered tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in their lives. And I'm wondering, how do we deal with the, what seems to be inequity of suffering? And, and there seems to be exactly that. I mean, for me, the first uh, answer to the question is just a pastoral answer. I think it's important not to try to give a family like this an answer for their suffering because, frankly, we don't know. You know, back to Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So we just simply don't know the answer to that. But I know at the same time, uh, for the rest of us who are saying, why does that happen? So we're watching from afar and wonder about that. I mean, I think that we should just content ourselves in this, and that is, a loving heavenly Father uh, in some way ordains for every single one of us the best possible eternity. Somewhere we need to grasp that, Ben. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Want to be kept up to date on all the developments and behind the scenes of Back to the Bible Canada? Then be sure to sign up for our ministry update email. These monthly emails provide insights into what's new and what's forthcoming here at Back to the Bible Canada. Updates about the ministry's international efforts, new opportunities to share the good news spread around the globe. And you'll receive first word of exciting upcoming Bible resources, updates on upcoming events, things to celebrate, and exclusive five and five audio conversations between myself and a monthly guest, offering inside looks at the ministry and plans moving forward. To sign up to receive the monthly ministry update email, visit us at backtothebible.ca 
or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.